Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today I'm joined by Adjunct Associate Professor Dr Sue Block. Hi, Sue. Hi, Nadia. Um, so we are continuing our series today on life members, and this is the point traditionally where I would talk a little bit about the lands that we're gathering on, but we're actually um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand today, so um, I would still like to acknowledge the, the lands that land seas and waterways and skies throughout Australia that people are listening from. I should actually start out by saying kia ora. Kia ora to you. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little bit today about your your profession and the time that you've spent as a speech pathologist. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about what attracted you to speech pathology to start with? Hmm. Well, I've always been interested in speech and speaking. Um, I did a lot of public speaking at school mm -hmm. and enjoyed that. I used to go in competitions. And in those days, um, a lot of women if they went on to tertiary education, did teaching or nursing. Mm -hmm. And I really would have liked to have done medicine, but I don't think I was bright enough. <laughs> and so there was a previous old scholar who had done something called speech therapy. Mm -hmm. And the principal at the school I was at said, you might think about that. So I visited her in her clinic. I was at a country boarding school. And when I went home, I visited her and um, she was very enthusiastic and I liked what she was doing. She was in a hospital and my mother had volunteered in the hospital. She had been a nurse and she used to take around the trolley and I would go with her on school holidays or I suppose instead of childcare, I'd pot <laughs> yep. her around the hospital and um, go into people's rooms and chat with them and sell them a newspaper or a chocolate bar. And I was very comfortable in that situation and I just liked talking to people. And I thought if I find speaking relatively easy, it would be very good to be helping people who can't speak as easily. So that's really, I think, what got me into it. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you for that. Um, what about some things that have kept you interested in speech pathology over the years? Well, certainly involvement in the profession yeah. has kept me interested from time to time. I've done different things. I've been on what was the council mm -hmm. uh, and really enjoyed that. And um, that was before the board, wasn't that it? Was that before was before the board, the board. yes. Yeah. Yes, and it, in fact it was when we started, or just after we started to employ um, a CEO or a manager, mm -hmm. it was in those days. Um, and I think working on, at the moment, on, on the um, Vic branch, executive and there are young very enthusiastic people and it's very uplifting to be with yeah. um, younger people in the profession and people who are more experienced there's a colleague who's no longer working but she's very active um, so that keeps me interested but also <clears throat> clients who are asking you know what's the latest thing or what are the changes mm. And of course, students always keep you on your toes. So <laughs> sort of multi-pronged. Yeah. And you mm. spent a bit of time on the um, Speech Pathology Australia Ethics Board as well until oh, quite recently. I did. That's how we know each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That was wonderful because um, you came across so many different aspects that you might not have thought about 
in as much detail before. So, you know, clients who were dissatisfied with something and very often it just stemmed from poor communication mm. with their clinician or someone who was doing very non-evidence-based things, mm -hmm. um, a whole range of issues, but also looking at what was happening to people after they graduated and you think you would not have done that as a student. You wouldn't have passed if you'd done that as a student. <laughs> so why are you doing it now? Um, so the ethics board was a wonderful thing and I was really sorry to have finished my tenure on it. It's something I'd like to go back and do because it really it, it opened up a lot of aspects. And I think most members just don't realise how much is done um, that they don't see happening yeah. in the association. Not just the ethics board but you know the board members all sorts of committees a huge amount of work and people think you know what do we get for our membership well you actually get an enormous amount mm. but it's not right in your face yeah mm. yeah you have to mm. go looking for it sometimes mm. don't you mm. yeah um i think that leads us nicely into some of your mm. career mm. highlights ah well i think a real career highlight was um, instigating or um, making more permanent the intensive programs at La Trobe mm -hmm. for adolescents and adults who stuttered. Mm. Um, they were really begun with Don Robinson, Louise Brown and myself and we were looking to provide clinical experience for people who stuttered, mm -hmm. uh, for the students and, mm. and um, therapy for people who stuttered. And Don had come from America and he had lots of ideas on how to start this. And so we did intensive treatment programs and um, I was able to keep those going with a number of colleagues. And so for many years, all the students who went through La Trobe did an intensive experience working with people who stutter, which was wonderful because mm -hmm. they got experience not just with stuttering, but with... Um, assessment, instatement of a treatment, transfer and generalisation, maintenance, relapse, all the stages of treatment. Yeah. And the pro when I did my PhD and published some papers on the long-term effectiveness of student-delivered intensive treatment, um, I was invited to speak about the program overseas and it was replicated in some universities in Australia but also um, overseas and so that was a real highlight. Mm, very cool. I think once I got my PhD um, attending overseas conferences and just networking with people who started uh, with people who were working with people who started in all sorts of countries where the approaches might be quite different was really valuable and heartwarming because mm. it's, everybody was working with the same sort of clients but they might have come with a different point of view so i think the international networking was a highlight and of course <clears throat> working with students and trying students who would come into the clinic <laughs> saying or not saying you know oh, i really want to work in a hospital or i really want to work with mm -hmm. children with an intellectual disability say and then they would do um, the fluency clinic and say, oh, this is really interesting. And I think, yes, we've turned <laughs> we you. We won you over. Yes, exactly. 
Um, so I think those sorts of things have been um, really very, very um, special. Mm. Yeah. And going every three years, there's an international conference on stuttering and um, one year it will be in Rome, one year in Croatia, one year in Oxford. Um, and that's a real highlight. Yeah. It's something to look forward to and it's where you've got people who are interested in the same area coming together. So that's pretty special. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And to be able to do it, to attend, yeah. to have a workplace that's supportive of it yeah. was very important. All right. So that's great. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that have changed over the time that you've been a speech pathologist? Do you know how long that's been off the top of your head? Oh, uh, would be... Well, it'd be 50 years. 50 years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine quite a few things have changed in that time then. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, look, I think some of the biggest changes, of course, have been technology yeah. and um, evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all very well to be um, have a good relationship with your client, but if they're not making improvements in the way that they want, it's no good. Yeah. So um, I think the focus on evidence and really trying to adhere to that is tricky. Um, but that's been a big change and technology. I can remember in a clinic as a student at the um, training school, the old Lincoln Institute, we got a very important piece of technology and that was a video recorder. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we would video clients yeah. and look at their secondary symptoms and work then on their secondary symptoms. And you think, oh, dear, groan. Yeah. Um, you know, now if you get someone fluent, of course, they're not exhibiting that. Yeah. But in those days we had video and they could see themselves. Um, so that was interesting. And then technologies that have become smaller, um, you know, in-the-ear devices, mm. um, a range of those sorts of things. And, of course, how we deliver treatment. Yeah. I mean, during COVID, we delivered an intensive program over Zoom with um, half a dozen clients and some students. So remarkable. It is, isn't it? Mm. And I would have been willing to bet that, you know, we even as close to 2018, we would be saying, oh, I don't know that we'd be able to do that on Zoom. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, in the first week of COVID, this might last for a month. Yeah, you know. mm. absolutely. Um, all right. I think the next part of that would be some challenges that you faced in that time as well. Uh, look, I think challenges, of course, um, in a female-dominated profession. Yeah time out for children, uh, managing, balancing family and work mm -hmm. and travel. If you're going to um, present internationally or yeah. be part of a research team, um, that's a challenge and mm -hmm. at times a challenge. It's not just the challenge of time differences, but it's competing demands um, and funding, funding for research, funding mm. to attend um, conferences. Um, those sorts of things are challenging, but also in an environmental and a clinical setting, um, funding to um, fight for the presence of your area of interest mm -hmm. in an educational course. Yeah. 
Mm. Mm. I probably should have started out by mentioning that we are at IELP um, in New Zealand, so there may be some background noise <laughs> to all of this. So we do apologise if that's the case. Um, uh, did you have any other challenges that you wanted to speak to, Sue? Look, I think, Nadia, one of the things that I notice at the moment um, and have discussed with some of my colleagues is that despite the fact that the number of education programs is increasing markedly mm -hmm. and there are many, many more graduates coming out of universities, um, people are finding it difficult to find staff, particularly yeah, people in tricky. private practice. Uh, private practitioners are having to offer enormous salaries to new graduates to get them to stay. So I think it is an issue for the profession. We used to say in education that students on graduation should really ideally have at least two years of experience before they went into private practice. And now with large companies, large practices with the NDIS, um, often not managed by speech pathologists, um, they are offering enormous salaries to young people and or inexperienced people. And that's really, the salary's not concerning, but the level of supervision, the level of experience, and quite frankly, the low caseload yeah. that they manage, um, it's very concerning. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, were any of these things that ever made you feel like you wanted to leave the field for a different field? Or made you feel like that that was something that you were thinking about at that time? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> no, I truly have never thought um, I don't like the profession I'm in. I'm extremely proud of the profession. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I feel quite loyal to it. Um, and so, no, I've never wanted to leave it. I get concerned sometimes that I think we should have um, put out, advocated, look, we advocate all the time, but I, that we are sometimes overlooked or um, not at the forefront when people are talking about yeah. frontline allied health. Um, but no, I've never wanted to leave it. No, it's been very rewarding. And I think the clients that we work with are so grateful yeah. that that's uplifting. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's lovely. Um, so looking forward, are there things that you're excited about in the field? Uh, look, I think the growth of the profession, yeah. um, internationalisation, yeah. um, when you go to conferences like the IALP, where there are people from Europe and um, North America, everywhere. Yeah. Um, they're very respectful of Australians and um, it's exciting. And I think that um, the growth and the outward looking nature of the profession is um, encouraging the fact that we've got a lot of research happening, we've got many more people with PhDs who hold their own in a medical situation, in an educational situation, that's that's a wonderful thing. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, looking at um, perhaps the recognition that we're starting to get by other professionals, that sounds a little bit um, contradictory, but 
Um, I, I think the thing I am excited about is what will happen in the future. And I would like to think that more new members of the profession got more involved mm. because I think we've got some wonderful people who contribute a lot to Speech Pathology Australia, but they must be getting tired. <laughs> you know, if I look at the branch level, you know, the same people do a lot of the work. Yeah. And, you know, they're young people who've got other aspects yeah. to their lives that are important, but they contribute an enormous amount. And so, you know, I think um, full credit to them, but it, it, I am hoping that, you know, more people will step up. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's great. All right, well, the last question we've got for you today is just that do you have any advice for speech pathologists who are listening today? I think, uh, look, remember why you went into the field and some of the work is very repetitive <laughs> uh, and exhausting, but remember why you went in. And, you know, we make an enormous difference to quality of life and it's... Um, it's very satisfying to be on someone's journey, whether they become more fluent, whether their comprehension improves, whether they learn to say sounds they couldn't say, whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, bear with the monotonous part of the work mm -hmm. and look at the um, satisfaction you get of just knowing that you make a difference. And sometimes it's only a, a little difference. I think also for young people, take advantage of opportunities, yeah, you know, network, um, step up and represent your department in, uh, in your wider workplace or take advantage of professional development that mightn't be run-of-the-mill development. Um, travel and look up speech pathologists where you are yeah. and um, make contact because uh, it's truly a great profession and uh, it'll bring the rewards that you seek. Yeah, wonderful. All righty. Well, thank you so much for your time today and we might leave it there. Um, please make sure you tune in next time for our next conversation. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.